We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Notre Dame fans, welcome back to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. It is Tuesday, Thursday, May 13th. I'm kind of losing track of what day it is this week. And we're going to talk some Notre Dame football today, and we're going to talk about a couple different topics. The first topic we're going to discuss is the Notre Dame sophomore class. I believe this class is going to be very, very important to Notre Dame's success. It's not going to be the most important from a volume standpoint. Like There won't be more sophomores contributing necessarily than juniors or seniors. But it's a very important class in regards to this class has a chance to provide much-needed big playability, much-needed depth. And there's a couple players whose breakouts could be the difference between both sides of the ball really taking big jumps. And so we're going to dive into that. And then the second part is going to be we're going to discuss the pro football focus uh, top 10 position rankings that came out. Uh, I believe it was this week. And and. There were some good ones, obviously. They had Kyle Hamilton as a as the number two safety in the country, returning safety in the country. Uh, I think that's – I'd probably have him number one, but, I mean, you're number two. It's it's kind of splitting hairs at that point in time. They had Jarrett Patterson as the number four returning interior offensive lineman, which includes guards and centers, which is a pretty good ranking for him. Thought that was relatively accurate, but then there were some that were just, you know, how is this guy not on that list? So we're going to dive into that today as well. And uh, and then at the end, if you guys have questions, guys and gals have questions, I'll certainly answer questions and we'll dive into it again. Today's format, just a reminder, is going to be podcast form, which means I'm going to talk for a while and, and kind of go over the topics that, that we want to discuss. And then if you have things you want to interject into that into the middle of the podcast and you're more than welcome to do a super chat 
and we'll get that in there. And if if not, you want to wait till afterwards to ask Q&A. We'll certainly answer any questions that y'all have uh, at the end of the show. So excited to talk about this because I really think the sophomore class has a chance to to really be impactful. And you know, when this class signed, you know, it wasn't a big class. It was a, it was a smaller class. It was a class that, if you just look at it as a whole, had some I mean some holes to get to be redundant. You know, this class they didn't sign a linebacker in this class. They didn't sign a safety in this class. They came up short on offensive line numbers. There were some issues with this class when you look at it from where it ranks in, in you know the national rankings. Having said that, what this class did add was really, really good high-level talent. The ideal in a recruiting class is you want to be able to do talent plus depth plus meeting needs. And this class fell short in a couple of those areas. But it is so important for, for, for Notre Dame to add more difference makers it's on both sides of the ball. And I think that's what this class brings to the table. So we're going we're gonna to break it down into, I believe there's about 10 kids from this class that I look at and say they have a chance to be difference makers, which is category number one. You know, game changers, impact players, however you want to define it. And we're going to go difference makers. You know, then there's a group of guys that I look at as potential to be starters or or key contributors at positions where the rotation is vitally important. And then the third category are players that I believe are making a push, making a push to either be part of the rotation, making a push to maybe be difference makers, or guys that I think that Notre Dame staff needs to make a push for and and, and work into the rotation to really help the offense and the defense emerge. So we're we're gonna dive into that get into this and uh, just kind of talk about it talk about how, why I think this class is so important and this group of players is so important. So let's dive into it to begin. And we're going to talk about the difference makers for Notre Dame in this class. We're going to talk about the guys that I believe need to step up and be impact players for Notre Dame in 2020. And those two players to me are Michael Mayer and Chris Tyree. When you look at Michael Mayer, you know, when when we talk about the Notre Dame wide receivers, we also often talk about, you know, who is going to be the alpha, who is going to be the go-to guy. And what we don't talk about enough is the fact that I don't think Notre Dame necessarily needs uh, to have a difference maker, an alpha guy at wide receiver when you have a player like Michael Mayer tight end. It'd be nice to have a, a receiver that steps up and is that guy as well. But in this instance, I think when you look at it, you know, Michael Mayer has the talent. He's got the size. I mean, he came to Notre Dame physically ready to play. I mean, you just don't see tight ends come to college and, and be built like Michael, Michael Mayer's built. I mean, he was built more like a junior in college than he was a freshman. And he was a guy that I, I think the, the coaching, when you look at the coaching from John McNulty, I think the you have a kid that was ready-made, and then you combine it with a coach that I believe is a very good technical coach and did a very good job last year getting the players to develop throughout the year, getting players to, as the season wore on, to to overcome the areas where maybe their games were not up to par when the season started. And that's a great combination when you have that kind of natural ability with good coaching. So now we project Michael Mayer into year two. And, and I don't know what kind of production jump Michael Mayer is going to make, and, and certainly it'd be, it'd be great to see him become a – you know, 50, 60 plus catch guy, that may not happen. We've talked a little bit about this in recent shows. It may be a situation where 
you know, opponents are so focused on him that that he doesn't get the ball as much as you would like to see him get the ball. But I think the fact is, is that he has a chance to be the kind of guy that you have to build your defensive game plan around. And that's going to be important. And there's a couple things about that. Notre Dame has to be prepared for opponents to build their early season game plans around Michael Mayer. And there's really, I mean, there's two ways you can handle it. One is to say, okay, well, we're just, they're taking him out of the game. So we're not going to worry about it. We're going to get other guys involved. And there's some validity to that. But then the other part of it is, is to say, hey, look, we're going to take a, we're going to take this and say, okay, here's what you're doing to stop Michael Mayer. We need to make sure we have a game plan prepared. And then we need to make in game adjustments from a coaching staff standpoint to make sure that we're not allowing them to completely take him out of the game. Or if they are going to overemphasize taking him out of the game, that we can then use that to our advantage as a coaching staff. And I think those are the things that we need to see this Notre Dame coaching staff do from day one. So when they go down to Tallahassee and play Florida State on Sunday, September 5th, I believe they need to have a game plan to say, hey, look, we expect them to do this to Michael Mayer. So early in the game, I'd like to see Michael Mayer line up in the boundary. I'd like to see him line up attached in a wing, in the slot. I'd like to see him move all, all over the field. And from a formational standpoint, make it hard to know where he's going to be. I think that's an important part of this. I think the other part of this conversation is, is I want to see, and I think a lot of other people want to see, Michael Mayer be used more effectively down the field. And I think the emergence in the, or the, the arrival of Jack Cohn should help with that. I think the arrival of Jack Cohn should allow Notre Dame to be more aggressive attacking down the field in general. And it should certainly make help him to be more effective attacking down the field with the tight end. When you watch Jack Cohn play, I've talked about this in the past. They, Wisconsin doesn't throw the deep ball a ton. Jack Cohn was very effective throwing the deep ball. And we've we've got breakdowns on at irishbreakdown.com where we, we go over this. Where, where, and I've got the stats to look at what his QB rating was on deep balls. And you compare it to you know, Ian Book, for example, who was the previous Notre Dame quarterback. And I think that the deep ball is going to become a bigger part of that. I'd like to see Notre Dame use Michael Mayer more effectively and more frequently attacking down the field. And I think those are ways to do it. Now, attacking down the field isn't just about uh, seam routes and, and, and vertical routes like that. It's partly that. It's also about, and we saw that in the Blue Gold game. We saw, uh, I believe, yeah, Jack Cohn hit George Takas on a backside seam route over the linebackers in front of the safeties for a 30-plus yard gain. That's part of it. It's also about using it on combo routes and switch routes, you know, where you're trying to use, you know, use the aggressiveness of playing Michael Mayer to, to run a wheel route, for example, or, you know, using him on double moves, I think, especially when you're seeing teams being aggressive, taking him away. But it's also about using his size and his athleticism to get teams to chase, you know, chasing him on deep drag routes, chasing him on corner routes. And then what you do with that is, is if, if a team is going to aggressively play Michael Mayer, so for example, you have a defense that says, hey, we're going to try to reroute him with the linebacker and we're going to spy on him over top with a safety. Well, then what you say as a coaching staff is you say, okay, fine, we're going to utilize that. We're going to send him, we're going to have him as the number two receiver. We're going to send him on a deep corner route. That's going to take away a linebacker and a safety. And then you bring one of your speedsters on a, on a deep drag behind it. And so basically the safety is going to vacate part of the zone to, to jump on Michael Mayer. And then you just replace him with somebody going back. Uh, so, you know, that's, I think the thing that, um, uh, that, that I want to see from Michael Mayer when, when you look at what Notre Dame is going to be able to do with him. So I think an expanded role, and I'm not saying. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm not being critical of how they used him last year. He was a true freshman. He didn't, I I would imagine, he didn't know the entire playbook. You had to make sure you found things that he was good at early. I think the staff did a great job of how they used Michael Mayer last year. Now it's about, as he gets older, expanding his role and taking advantage of his full repertoire as as a player. I think if you do that, you now have your 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 so to speak your alpha pass catcher. You have a guy that can you can build your offense around, and then all those other complementary pieces that we talk about at receiver, you can utilize to complement Michael Mayer. And then how teams defend him will open some things up. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. I think when you look at Chris Tyree at running back, he's going to be a big key to this offense this year. And and he's a guy to me that I look at and I say, you've got Mayer who who's, you know, could be your major weapon in the pass game, your number one weapon in the pass game. You've got Kyron Williams, who we're going to talk about later in the show when we talk about the pro football focus rankings, who's who's kind of your lead back. He's a thousand yard guy. You're going to see him being more involved in the pass game. You say, well, where's the role for Chris Tyree? Well, the role for Chris Tyree, in my opinion, is he needs to be sort of not a breather player anymore, but he needs to be a complementary player now. And, and in that role, he can be dynamic. And here's the unique aspect of, of why I think Chris Tyree and, and Kyron Williams can be such an effective one-two punch at running back. Because unlike some of the, the really good combinations we've seen in recent years when you look at you know, the Georgia combination a, a few years ago, back in 2017 with uh, Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle. And you, even you last year, you look a little bit at the North Carolina combo with with uh, uh, Javante Williams and Michael Carter. A, a lot of these Oklahomas had some one-two punches like this. But a lot of times, you know, you, you need these guys to all get a lot of touches, you know, 10, 15 touches each. And to get them the number of touches, you have to go faster. You know, it's about volume. Well, the unique thing about Chris Tyree is I don't believe Chris Tyree is necessarily a, at this point in his career doesn't need to be a volume player. 
He's not a guy you have to say he has to get 15, 20 touches a game. Whereas with Kyron Williams, I, I do think you need to do that. I think Kyron is more effective when he gets more and more volume. With Chris Tyree, it's about making sure that you're involving him in the game plan early, getting him opportunities to carry the ball, getting him opportunities to catch the ball. Because with a guy like Chris Tyree, he brings a Dexter Williams element back when Dexter was more of a rotation player in that Chris Tyree may only touch the ball eight, nine at the most 10 times a game. But you, the more touches you get him, the more opportunity he is that he's going to hit a home run. And so, you know, you could see a situation with Chris Tyree this year where, you know, he averages – you know, eight, nine yards a carry on or eight, nine yards a carry in it, you know, as a, as a guy off the bench, kind of like Dexter Williams did a couple years ago. That's a lot of carries, but I think that's what he's capable of. If you get him regular, you know, a regular role in the rotation, then you add in what he can do in the past game on screens, on, on wheel routes. We saw Notre Dame in the blue gold game, use him outside. He ran a really nice pivot route, caught the ball clean, got upfield for an easy 18 yards. I mean, you're talking about a guy, that's going to average well over 10 yards a touch could, could average well over 10 yards a touch. And, and so when you have a guy that's doing that, you don't have to get him 15, 20 touches a game. And so I think that's where Chris Tyree and, and, and uh, Kyron Williams are, are complimentary players. But the more important part of Chris Tyree is yes, it's, it's good to get him involved in doing some of the dirty work and you're running them on some inside zones, but it is so important in my opinion for coach Reese and the rest of the coaching staff, to go into every game plan saying, how can we utilize Chris Tyree's home run ability? And not only for the direct purpose of home runs, which is clearly the primary goal. The second part of it is you, you're in a situation where it's about once he starts becoming that home run player, you now see you're going to see teams have to be mentally ready for that. So then you get into situations. OK, so when you have Kyron Williams in the slot on one side, when you when you've got Chris, uh, Michael Mayer on the other side, and then you got Chris Tyree in the backfield, how how do you defend that? How do you handle that? What's your emphasis going to be? Because if if Chris Tyree becomes the home run hitter that we're talking about, and he's more of a regular part of the rotation than Dexter Williams was the year that he was averaging nine yards a carry, which was 2017, you know, he'd get three four carries a game. Chris Tyree needs to have more volume than that but he doesn't need 15 to 20 touches a game. So he's got to continue to grow his game. We saw that in the spring to where he can do the dirty work and then but also like I said more importantly be a guy that can can provide the big play. So these two players to me if they step up and and play to their potential as sophomores and not their full ultimate potential but their potential for what they can be as sophomores these guys are game changers, and, and not only do they provide you with direct impact production and impact play, but you're also talking about how then it impacts everybody else around them, and, and that's the important thing. And Chris Kyron Williams is going to be a, one of the best running backs in the country this year, but if you can't focus on him as a defense because you have to worry about Michael Mayer and Chris Tyree as well, then it only makes Kyron Williams better. And that's how you get to the level of when you look at North Carolina last year, you say, how did they have two guys that that went for over 1,000 yards and also throwing for 3,000 yards? It's because teams had such a hard time knowing who to defend that it allowed those running backs to, to be more about, uh, you know, the, 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 the high, lower volume, but higher yards per carry. When you look at Michael Carter, we've talked about this recently. 
He averaged 7.98 yards per carry. Uh, Javante Williams averaged 7.26. They both went over 1,000 yards in only 11 games, and both of them only averaged 14 carries a game. Uh, that's really efficient, explosive production. And then you look at them in the past game, they all they both averaged 2.3 receptions per game. And so you look at the two of them and you look at their total offense production, and these numbers are really staggering. But they both averaged over 100 yards of total offense per game. Uh, actually, actually, let me let me go down here and, and get the the actual numbers here. I'm, I'm pulling it up now. Um, but so Michael Carter averaged 151 yards per game. Javante Williams averaged 131 yards per game. They both averaged about 16 to 17 total touches a game, which is not a lot. So for Notre Dame, you say, okay, maybe Kyron's going to be closer to 20 and Chris Tyree's going to be mo- closer to 12. But Chris Tyree, I would argue, is the most explosive player of this four group of players that we're talking about. So I think it's a situation where his total yards per touch, and Michael Carter was 8.8 yards per play. Javante was at 7.9 yards per play. I think if Notre Dame does this offense right and utilizes RPOs and pushes the tempo a little bit, you could see Kyron be around that 7.5 to 8 yards per play, but you could see Chris Tyree be closer to, to 9.5 to 10, if not beyond. And, and that's where I think you could get that level of production. But more important, as we said, it just makes Notre Dame so, so much harder to defend. So let's go to the second category. These are guys that I believe can can either be a starter or a very key contributor. And when I talk about contributor, I'm not talking about a guy that just plays five, 10 snaps a game. It's part of a rotation. I'm talking about guys, and you're going to notice they're all on defense. I'm talking about guys that I look at as being contributors to being like, they're, they may not be starters. And in this case, only one of these guys right now is projected to be a starter. That's Clarence Lewis. But guys that are expected to be, hey, when you're in the game, you have to be a difference maker. And that's where Riley Mills and Jordan Patejo come into this conversation. So when you look at when you look at this group of guys, I think the sophomore class could be even more important for on defense from a volume of imp, of production standpoint. Now, maybe none of these guys are going to be asked to be Michael Mayer, and and they and they may not even be asked to be like kind of the the defensive version of Chris Tyree. But they're going to be very important. You know, Clarence Lewis emerging in year two is very important for Notre Dame. He's a guy that needs to be steady. I don't expect Clarence to go out there and be an All-American and, and that type of player, but he's got a lot of Julian Love in him in that even though they're different athletes, it's just that that steadiness, that intelligence. That Not only is he a good athlete, but I think Clarence is a really smart football player. Clarence was a really good wide receiver in high school, and I think that has helped him – make a quick growth at cornerback. Now it becomes more about, okay, you're steady, but now you need to start making some more plays. I think that's the next step for Clarence now that he goes into his sophomore year. He has to continue to evolve because he, even though he's a sophomore and the youngest guy in the the cornerback rotation among, with Cam Hart and, and Chris Tyree, or excuse me, Chris Tyree, Tariq Bracey, is you, you need a guy, in my view, that you can kind of depend on with those other guys that, that are still kind of coming along and progressing in, in different ways. So when I look at it, I say Clarence has to sort of be that rock. Now, if Clarence is, is what I hope he can be, and that is a steady contributing player and starter in the lineup, then you can look at it and say, okay, well, where do you use him? 
Do you use him in the slot at times when you go nickel? Are you going to have him play the field? If Cam Hart, you know, falters or gets hurt, do you move him to the boundary? There's all types of things you can do with him, and I think that versatility that Clarence brings should help him. Now, I would imagine Notre Dame's going to start with him as the field corner, but if they have to look at how they can move guys around, that's going to help. But Clarence needs to kind of – he needs to have the kind of fall camp and early start to the season where he tells the staff, like, hey, look, basically with my play, he tells them with his play that, you know, I'm going to make plays wherever you put me. And if if the best way for us to get the best tandem on the field is for me to be in the slot or me to be in the boundary, then that's what you do. And that's where you put him. So I, I think he has to be a very key, steady contributor for Notre Dame next year. The next two guys, to me, are going to be low-volume, high-impact players. That's how I see it. What I mean low-volume is, you know, they're not going to be getting 50 snaps a game. You know, Riley Mills is going to be, a, a, a to me, a difference maker for Notre Dame this year. But he's going to be the rotation defensive tackle with Jason Adamiola. I think that one-two punch could be absolutely special this year for Notre Dame. Absolutely special. I think, you know, you're in a situation where you have a veteran three technique that I think could be a 10-plus tackle for loss, Sheldon Day type of player. Then you have a Riley Mills that, to me, if 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 Jason Adamilla got hurt, could step into the lineup and be a similar type of player. You got to love that production. Now with Riley, there's still a level of consistency that's going to be needed from him. And as as you expect from a, from a sophomore player, he's going to have to step up and be more consistent with his technique, be more consistent with his effort. And he's still listed at 279 pounds, so there's just a little bit more of strength and weight that's going to be needed for him to to take on a, a more of a high volume role. The good news for Notre Dame is, is right now they don't need him to do that. And so it's about if he's in there for 10 snaps or 15 snaps or 20 snaps, 25 snaps, or whatever it is, Riley Mills is a guy that needs to produce impact plays. I think the other part of him in this defense is, is you know, Riley was a big end in high school. You know, they did a lot of three down looks in high school, and he was a guy that would pass rush as a five technique. You know, he would inside pass rush, he'd come off the edge, he's got really good hands. Uh, very powerful hands, quick hands, knows how to use his hands to be effective as a pass rusher. So there's situations where you can use him in a three-down look as a, as a five technique coming off the tackle. There are situations, I believe, that Notre Dame could use him and Jason Adamiola together uh, on the field, especially in some third-down situations. Or if you're playing a team like USC, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a horrible idea to, to have Riley Mills, Jason Adamiola, and and Myron Tungvaloa on the field at times together in certain situations against an offense like that. So I believe that there's an opportunity for them to play together. But at the end of the day, Notre Dame needs Riley Mills to be a playmaker on this defense. They need him to use his athleticism, his natural power, and his instincts as a, as a pass rusher and a penetrator to be effective. Now, Jordan Patelho is an interesting player. This is a kid that was a top 100 recruit coming out of high school, had some issues adjusting to Notre Dame, which are well-documented. But he he went through it. He battled through it. He, he got past some of that immaturity, came back to Notre Dame, and seems to, you know, this spring, and seems to be just a different guy. Now, the thing about Jordan is he's always been sort of that high-motor, high-energy, passionate guy. You, you saw that this year on special teams, and he was always kind of – I don't know if you could see it on TV, but, you know, we would see it in the press box. But after every special teams play, he was in somebody's face running his mouth. I know some people don't like that. I do. I like guys that play with a chip on the, on their shoulder. I like guys that that get in the other team's heads. You, you know, I, I I don't mind a little trash talk as long as it's not crossing the line. It's going to get you flagged, and it, it never got him flagged. I don't believe. But now we're also seeing him and him enhance his game. We're starting to see the instinctive playmaker that we saw on film in high school 
that could play off the edge, that could play inside linebacker, that could drop in coverage, that could do all those kind of things that made him a top 100 recruit beyond just the motor and the quickness. We started to see those things flash this spring. And he was a guy that really became a, a an impact pass rusher off the edge. In practice, we saw it a lot. I mean, him and Isaiah Foskey, I can think of at least six or seven plays off the top of my head in the spring where they were on the field together and they were basically like meeting at the quarterback. So clearly the Notre Dame staff is, is, is going to try to find ways to use those two guys on the field together at times, especially in nickel packages on third down. And that's where Jordan Patejo brings a unique skill set. You know, I say Foskey's like 6'5", 250, like these very, very long arms. Jordan Patejo's like 6'2", he's like 240, he's got his arms aren't as long. He's, he's almost built more like Manti Tail than he is a defensive end, just from a body type standpoint. But he also has sort of the foot quickness, the instincts, and the ability to drop in coverage, not just from coverage from a Viper standpoint, but coverage from a linebacker standpoint. So I think there's going to be times this year where we see those two guys stacked on top of each other where in a three-down look, you're going to have Foskey as the five technique, the defensive end, and you're going to have Patelho drop right behind him as a linebacker. I, I think we're going to see that this year. But ultimately, what's needed from Jordan Patelho is, number one, keep your head on straight, but number two, don't lose that fire. And the thing that we talked a little bit about, Vince and I talked about this, I, I think it was yesterday's show, but he's got that unique ability to, to contort his body, and it's not just a physical ability, but it's an instinct to say, okay, I'm, I'm at the edge and I, this guy's got an angle on me. So I've either got to dip and rip, or I've got to use a double move, or I've got to, you know, get low and get underneath his hands, all those types of things. We see some of that stuff from Jordan. Now in the spring game, he just basically needed speed to get around Tosh Baker. But I, I, I love the idea of, of using him and Foskey together, but also the notion of them being a dynamic rotation at that Viper spot. And when you can bring two guys with, with the athleticism that these two players bring to the table, but then also the different skill sets, that can be a pain for an offensive tackle. One, one series, you're going against a 6'5", 250-pound kid that's just this freaky athlete. And then the next series, you're going against a 6'2", 240-pound sawed-off kid that just plays like, like this is the last play he's ever going to get a chance to play football and just plays with this insane, intense motor. How you go defend both of them is going to be different, and that can make it very, very difficult for an offensive tackle because you know they're going to have different moves and different pass rush repertoires and different usages and and different skill sets. And it's like, okay, well, I just started to get a, a feel for what Bosky was doing, and now I got to deal with Patelho. Okay, I just started getting a feel for what Patelho was doing, and now I got to deal with Foskey. And then if you put if you put Patelho in there on the same time. In sort of a stack look, now you can do some stuff where you can actually play some games with them. You can slant Foskey inside, bring Patelho outside. You can bring Foskey outside, bring Patelho inside. You can play line games with him on the inside. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do. And that background he has playing linebacker is something that allows Notre Dame to use him as a weapon. So I'm excited about what Notre Dame can do with those two young linemen and, and along with veterans like Isaiah Foskey and Jason Adamiola, that co- those two combinations could be absolutely dynamic. And in my opinion, and this is why they're so important to, to this conversation, is in my opinion, if the sophomores step up and play to their potential and are difference makers, it, it serves two purposes, in my opinion. And this is where they're, they're, they're really impact players. And this is why I, I think you could make a case 
for Mills and Patelho being in the above category of, you know, the difference makers. Because not only do they provide playmaking ability and potential, but if Riley Mills is balling out and Jordan Patelho is balling out, that only increases the odds that you're going to get the best from Jason Adamiola and Isaiah Foskey. Because number one, there's always that healthy teammate competition. You know, anything you can do, I can do better type of thing. And that's always good. But it's also one of those things where, hey, if you don't bring it on a Tuesday practice or you don't bring it on this rep or, you, you know, you may be tired, but you don't you do not do it here, you, you could find yourself on the sidelines because this kid is bringing it those days. And, and I think that is something that, that great teams always have. Notre Dame is getting to the point where there's more of that, and, and it's especially true on the defensive line. So I'm very, very excited about what this group brings to the table. Now, my next category of players are guys that are making a push. Now, this means a couple different things. Number one is they're making a push for either a starting job, they're making a push for a key spot in the rotation, or in some instances I'll get into, they're guys that the Notre Dame coaching staff needs to make a push with. And and that's and, and they're all different situations. So first you look at Drew Pine. Drew Pine, look, I, I think the expectation for Notre Dame was that by the end of the spring, Jack Cohn would be the clear, no doubt about it, starter. In my opinion, Jack Cohn did everything he needed to do to make me feel good about where he is. And I do feel very, very good about where Jack Cohn is. But I think part of the reason that Brian Kelly doesn't want to name a starter yet is because of how well Drew Pine performed. I think he's clearly the number two quarterback right now, but I do think he's played well enough to where he deserves an opportunity to go into the fall with an, with another shot to, to battle for that starting job. He's making a push. Now, I expect Jack Cohn to win the job, but, but Drew Pine stepping up is important because even though Tyler Buckner showed his playmaking ability in the spring, He's still a ways away mentally, consistency-wise, and those type of things from being an every-down quarterback. And, and I know that his play in the spring game got people excited, but there's still a lot of work that's needed there. My hope this spring is that, or this summer and fall is that, you know, Jack Cohn's going to be the starting quarterback. That's not my hope. That's just what I think is going to happen, barring injury. Jack Cohn's going to be the starter. Tyler Buckner is going to play well enough to where he kind of forces himself into a, a rotation role, which we've talked about on this podcast before. You know, so now it's, hey, Jack Cohn is the guy and Tyler Buckner is going to be our short yardage guy, maybe rotate him in every now and then. And if something happens to Jack Cohn where Jack Cohn gets injured or gets hurt, then now all of a sudden you're in a situation where uh, you, Drew Pine can step into the starting lineup. And then you don't have to change Tyler Buckner's role. And that's the push that Tyler, that to me, Jack Cone or Drew Pine is making. I also think that Drew Pine, even as a backup, could provide leadership that you just don't often see from a backup quarterback. And I think that's another reason it's important, important that he's making a push. Xavier Watts is a player that to me is the Notre Dame coaching staff needs to make a push with and for. And here's why I say that. Number one, Xavier was was misused this spring as a W. They had him playing boundary. That's not where his game. Uh, that's not where his game is best suited. He is a guy to me that should be playing the X and the Z, which are the two field positions. He is a guy to me that brings a unique skill set that that Notre Dame needs to take advantage of. In that Xavier has enough speed to stretch the field down vertically. He has enough speed to do things across the field on horizontal stuff like crossers and drags, but he's also a player that can be dynamic with the ball in his hands. 
And Notre Dame needs more and more of those types of players. They need to make sure that he's ready to go this sprint this fall. Whether that means he's necessarily playing 20 snaps in the first game, it may not be the case. But they have to find ways to get him involved early. They have to find ways to utilize. You know, I think we expect the starters right now to probably be Lindsey, uh, Austin, and Avery Davis. They have to find ways to get Lawrence Keyes involved in the offense and get him touches. They have to find ways, in my opinion, to get Xavier Watts the same. And and Lorenzo, you can talk about Lorenzo Styles as well. And, and I think Lorenzo is should is this year what they should have done with Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts last year. You need to get him on the field, get him that opportunity. Uh, so so, but with Xavier, I think that Xavier and Lorenzo bring a little bit of a different skill set to the table. And so I'm speaking specifically to the skill set that Xavier Watts brings. And he is a unique talent in my view and and a guy that I believe needs a push. He is also a player that, that and this is where I think one of my beefs with wide receiver coaching has been at Notre Dame is, you know, Xavier Watts and Kendall Abdul-Rahman didn't come to Notre Dame as natural wide receivers. Kendall played quarterback, and he needed the extra attention to ever get comfortable quarterback receiver, and he never really got it. Just fine, you know, and he he transferred somewhere else. Well, Xavier played receiver in high school, but he was also a standout defensive back. He was always a guy that we talked about and said, hey, he he is someone who needs to learn the finer points of playing receiver. He just got by on being a great athlete in high school. He doesn't really know how to you know get off the press very well, and his route running is is relatively basic. And he's a kid that needed a push beyond someone like as Lorenzo Styles, who's more of a natural receiver, or Jordan Johnson, who's more of a natural receiver. He's a guy that needs more of a push. And they, the coaching staff needs to do that. Coach Alexander needs to do that. He needs to start making more time to take some of these younger guys and say, hey, look, this kid needs more of a push technically than maybe another player does, and you work with them to take advantage of a skill set. It shouldn't be on the player to always do that. He has to get the coaching and get the push as well, not the push in regards to getting him to work, but you need to make sure that the opportunities are always there for him to put in the extra work if he wants it. Tosh Baker's an interesting player. I think Tosh had a great winner, put on a lot of weight, worked hard in the weight room, but if you look at him, a lot of that weight is in the upper body, and it's not great weight. Which sometimes, you know, that's um, that's just the that's just gonna that's just gonna happen. And and when a guy is two sixty five, two seventy, uh, you need him to put on the weight first. Then when the weight comes, you reshape the body. And I think that's what's going on with Tosh Baker, which makes his offseason unique. It's unique because. Now that he's put the weight on and he's shown a willingness to put in the work in the in, in the weight room, and now it's about let's reshape that body. I think Tosh had some issues this spring with strength. He still needs to get stronger. He lost. He he had footwork issues from a, not from an athleticism athleticism standpoint, but more so from a footwork standpoint. They have to do a lot with him to get his footwork right because he's a player that that t- two things are true from him. Number one. He's your next tackle in. If Josh, if Josh Lug and and uh, Blake Fisher are your tackles, Tosh is your next guy in. So you're in a situation where Josh Lug has got a little bit of a, a, a quirky back. He's had some injury issues in the past. You need to push the envelope with Tosh to get him ready should his name be called. Or if you get into a situation where you lose a guard and you say, okay, we need to move Josh inside the guard because Tosh is our our, our next tackle. And then also when you look at the future, 
Tosh Baker and Blake Fisher are your future at offensive tackle. You need to make sure that Tosh doesn't suffer through this year as a second second string player what Kristoffic and other players went through the last couple of years, which is they hardly ever see the field. Tosh needs to get time this year. I think it would be smart for the staff in some of these early season games against Toledo and some teams like that to, to maybe work him in for a series in the first half uh, or two. I think that would be smart for Notre Dame to do, to see what he can do, give him that opportunity to develop his game. But he's a guy that if he has the kind of summer that he had as a winner, then you're going to see his game take a big jump here as we get into as we get into the 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 fall, and, and so he's a guy to me that is still is still in my opinion making a push defensively. Aiden Kaanaana is a really unique player for Notre Dame because the depth that they have at defensive tackle, it's going to be hard for him to kind of get into a normal rotation role. But here's the thing: Notre Dame is still a very undersized defensive line, especially inside. Kurt Heinisch is a puffed up 295. He's not really a natural 295 guy. Jason Adamiola is 280, 285. Riley Mills is listed at 279. Howard Cross is in the 270s. Jacob Lacey's like a 290 guy, but even he's not a massive player. You have one defensive tackle that's not a freshman that brings unique, natural girth and size, and that's Aiden Kaanaana. I think there's a and, and I thought I was impressed by what he did in the blue gold game. He was a guy that played on both teams. I thought he showed physicality. I thought he showed you know good quickness for a size. He anchored well. He's the one nose tackle that I look at and say that guy can anchor. That guy can you can put in there in a short yardage or goal line situation and say, hey, you can't move. You can't let them get you can't let them move you. You can't let them get off of you. You need to occupy that A gap and that guard and that center so that our linebackers can crash through and blow up a play. He can do that. And so I think he's a guy, to me, with the way he played this spring, we started to see him flash in the high, in the highlights late in the spring, that if Aiden can take another jump going into the summer and into fall camp, he could be a really important situational guy for you. Maybe he doesn't play much against USC, except for short yard of situation, but then maybe he plays 20 snaps against Wisconsin because you need that body type there. So him make him making a push, him stepping up, gives Notre Dame something that they desperately need, which is if you need it, if the moment calls for it, do you have a big-bodied guy that you can throw in there and can be effective and and not just be a body but be an effective body? And Aiden can be that. You know, I had him as a graded as a four-star player. He may still be a year away from pushing into a regular role, but I think him continuing to build on what he did at the end of the spring is very important for this defense because there's going to be moments and situations, short yardage goal line, but also some opponents where you're going to really, really need that skill set. Ramon Henderson's a unique player in that he didn't really make a lot of plays in the videos we saw. There was a lot of times where he was getting beat. Brian Kelly praised him for his growth during the spring. I thought he played relatively well in the blue gold game. He's a unique player in that he has a very rare size speed combination. I think Ramon is still learning to be a football player. He was a really standout track guy in high school. He has great speed. We haven't yet fully seen that translate to football speed yet. But uh, now you have another offseason. He missed out on last spring because he had the one practice and then everything got canceled. 
Then you go into this year, and he made some growth this year in the spring. Now it's about using that to then build in the summer and fall because he can present – if he can make another jump, he presents Notre Dame with, with a unique skill set that you could really want to utilize as a corner. And so he's another guy to me that's making a push uh, and getting ready to go. So that is our conversation about – the Notre Dame sophomore class. I believe this class is incredibly important to Notre Dame this year. And as we talked about, maybe not so much from a volume standpoint, but there's a, this is a list of 10 players, and at least six or seven of those guys have a chance to be regulars and, and have the talent to be playmakers. And, and that is so important, not just for the future of Notre Dame's football team, but for the present of Notre Dame's football team. All right, so that that's going to wrap that up. Let's talk a little bit about the pro football focus, top 10 position rankings. So we're going to start with the good, and then we'll get to the bad, and then then the ugly, which are kind of the same thing. I've never understood that expression. But the good is they named Kyle Hamilton as the number two returning safety in the country, uh, which is a positive, obviously. You know, Kyle Hamilton, I think you can make a case that Kyle Hamilton should have been number one. But uh, – I, naming him number two is is fine. You know they they named a West a guy that transferred from West Virginia to Georgia, so I mean it makes sense they're they're going to put the SEC guy up there number one. You know it is what it is. But they had not, Kyle Hamilton number two. They talked about how good he is in coverage. I think the thing about Kyle Hamilton that surprised me this past year was how big of a jump he made in the run game. I thought Kyle Hamilton's production in the run game was was outstanding this year, and that. I thought it would come in time. I didn't think it would come by a sophomore year. And so now you look at him uh, and going into his junior year and, you know, I'm not going to make a big beef about him not being number one, but I'll say this, I'll be shocked if he's not the best safety in the country, practically speaking, when we get to the fall. So that was a positive. They had Jarrett Patterson ranked as the number four interior player in the country, interior blocker. That ranking was about guards and centers. So clearly they expect him to be one of the best interior players in the country. They rank him number four. That's amongst three different positions, left guard, right guard, and center. So, of course, those are two highly ranked guys. Uh, when, you look at, when you look at the rest of the list, there were several Notre Dame opponents were on that list. I'm going to go through this real quick. Wisconsin had three. They had linebacker Jack Sanborn was ranked as the number seven returning off-ball linebacker. Jake Ferguson, their tight end, was ranked as the number 10 tight end. And then Keanu Benton was named as a name-to-watch defensive player. So basically they had 10 players, 1 through 10, and then they had one more name-to-watch. So they were really a top 11 kind of thing. USC had a pair of players on the list. Keaton Slovis was the number 10 quarterback. Drake Jackson was the uh, name-to-watch as an edge player. He's a defensive end. North Carolina had uh, quarterback Sam Howe was the number two signal caller on the list. Storm Duck, their cornerback, was the tenth returning 10th best cornerback, which I found a little surprising. Cincinnati cornerback Ahmad Gardner was ranked number two among uh, returning national cornerbacks. And obviously Ahmad Gardner was coached by Mike Mickens as a freshman. He was a freshman All-American. And uh, their defensive end Sanders was ranked as the number five edge rusher. So Cincinnati's going to have two impact defensive players on their team this year. And I, I think both of those rankings are very fair. Purdue wide receiver David Bell was ranked as the number eight player at, at that position. Virginia Tech tight end James Mitchell was ranked number nine. Uh, notice who was not on the list. Who was not on the list 
was Michael Mayer. So according to Pro Football Focus, there are actually 11 tight ends coming back this year that are that head into the season better than Michael Mayer, which I think is, is an absurd, absurd thing. The even more absurd part of it is they had Eric Gilbert, who was in that class last year, who was also a freshman last year, uh, who was at LSU last season, transferred to Florida, decided to leave Florida, and now he currently doesn't have a team. He's still ranked number two on this list, which I find to be absolutely absurd. He had 35 catches for 368 yards, 10.5 yards per catch last year in eight games. And, uh, you know, I to have him number two and then Michael Mayer not even on the list is just beyond absurd. They had Charlie Kohler from Iowa State, number one. Gilbert, two. Jalen uh, Weidermeyer from Texas A&M, number three. He's a good player. Isaiah Likely from Coastal Carolina, number four. Grant Cuthie from Utah, number five. Uh, Trey McBride from Colorado State, number six. Uh, Greg Dulcich from UCLA, number seven. Uh, Austin Stogner from Oklahoma, number eight. Uh, James Mitchell from Virginia Tech, number nine. And then Jake Ferguson from Wisconsin, number 10. And then they had Peyton Hendershot from Indiana was the name to watch player. So when I... When I saw that and I and I saw Michael Mayer, I thought, you know, that that is just um that is that is just uh just freaking ridiculous. And I'm I'm sorry to, to say it so bluntly, but that to me is just stupidity uh to not have Michael Mayer. And I'm trying to be as professional as possible, but when you when you look at the numbers that he had this year, when you look at the production he had in some in some pretty crucial moments, when you look at his ability to to block effectively for a freshman when you look at his ability to make plays after the catch, which was very unique uh, for a tight end. And, and you just see all those kind of things and you just start asking yourself, what in the world are they looking at? It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and, you know, to see a guy from Coastal Carolina there, look, that's no disrespect to Coastal Carolina, but I'm sorry. That's just, you know, they had a guy, the kid from Indiana that's on there. Okay. This was his production last year. And again, numbers don't tell you the whole story. Peyton Hendershot played eight games last year. He had 23 catches for 151 yards. He averaged 6.6 yards per catch. And yet he's on the list. And Michael Mayer, who had 42 catches for 450 yards, is not on the list. And uh, you just, I mean, it's almost at the point where it's tough to, it's starting to get tough to take pro football focus seriously when it comes to their rankings. Now, here's the deal. I really like pro football focus when it comes to the data that they collect, when it comes to their ability to say, Hey, look, you know, here's the, here's the number of snaps and the guy lined up in the slot this way and all these other kind of things. But you know, there's value in that. And I really used to like what pro football focus brought to the table when it came to, you know, their analysis of college. Well, a lot of the best analysts in my opinion have moved on to the NFL or onto the draft. Uh, and when I, when I look at it now, I just, I, I ask myself sometimes like, what are they, what are they, what are they doing? You know, you look at some of the post-game rankings from Notre Dame this year, there were games, there's a couple games this year where Notre Dame smacked their opponent. And then you'd look at the grades and the other team's players graded out higher than Notre Dame's players. Just, it, it was just nonsensical. And some of the guys, I think they had like four Clemson starters ranked higher than anybody Notre Dame had on defense. It was just, it was just some silly, silly stuff. And, I don't know how they do it. I don't know who ranks it. I don't know if this ranking is just taken off of, you know, other players' ranks. It, it, there's really no – doesn't seem to be a method of their madness. But whoever's doing these rankings, um, 
just with all due respect, just doesn't have a, doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And, uh, you know, it, it's obvious when you see something like this and you can say, Oh, you know, you're a Notre Dame guy, whatever. I'm, I, I mean, I think y'all know me well enough to know right now, I'm not going to go pounding on the table for a guy to, to be ranked high. If, if he doesn't deserve to be that thing. And here's the other part that's hilarious is even their own rankings make some of this, of this list look stupid. They have Peyton Hendershot with a grade of 57.1, which is a, a very low grade. It's a very mediocre grade. And then if you look at what where they have Michael Mayer, they had Michael Mayer last year as a, as a true freshman. They gave him a grade of, I'm pulling it up right now, see Michael Mayer of 71.0. So he had a significantly higher grade last year, significantly higher production last year. As a true freshman, Michael Mayer had a higher grade than Peyton Hendershot had in his first three seasons. Yet Peyton Hendershot is talked about as a, a guy that is a you know a, a name to watch, but Michael Mayer is not. There's just a lot of uh, absurdity to uh, to this list, and it just it really makes it hard to respect it. Even more, I felt ridiculous was the fact that they did they did not have. Um, oh, and by the way, you look at the blocking numbers. Michael Mayer had significantly better blocking numbers than Eric Gilbert as well on Pro Football Focus on rankings. Not having Kyron Williams on this list was to me an even bigger oversight. And and here's some of the so they had uh, Tank Bigsby number one. I, I got no problem with that. You know, he's a he's a talented player. It's now going into sophomore year. Uh, he he should be good. I think that's a little bit more about his hype as a big time recruit than it is necessarily his production last year. But I'm not going to get too upset about it. You know, he had 834 yards and and. Uh, in 10 games last year, averaged six yards a carry despite being on a, a pretty bad offense. I, I like Tank's, Tank Bigsby a lot, so I'm not going to get too fired up about that one. Number two, they had Deuce Vaughn from Kansas State. Uh, that one was a bit of a, a bit of a head scratcher for me. You know, Deuce Vaughn last year rushed, rushed for 642 yards in, in 10 games, 5.2 yards per carry. Um, Kyron Williams, he had – Decent amount of receiving yards, 434 receiving yards. He had nine total touchdowns. You look at Kyron Williams. Kyron Williams had more rushing yards than that kid had total yards. And Kyron Williams also caught 35 passes last year. And the other part of that is how do you have Deuce Vaughn as the number two running back when I would argue he's not even the best running back in the Big 12? You know, they had Brees Hall, who last year uh, was the nation's number one rusher last year with over 1,500 yards. 5.6 yards per carry, 21 touchdowns. They had him, I, as I'm looking at this list, he is the third running back in the entire Big 12. There's a lot of very, very puzzling things on this list, and uh, it just makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit as you look and say, what what are, what are they doing? What are they looking at? You know, there's some freshmen, sophomores. Key, Jerry on Ely last year had 745 yards uh, rushing, 5.1 yards per carry, uh, caught 15 passes for 155 yards. He's on there. Kyron Williams is not on there. Uh, Brees Hall is number six. Max Borgie from Washington State was on that list. Uh, that was another one that was, a, to me, a, a, a head scratcher in regards to having him. Not I like Mac Borgie. He's a good running back. Mac Borgie had played two games last year right you know he he played he rushed for 108 uh, 817 yards the year before good player uh but to have him on there and not have Kyron Williams on there they're putting a lot of value on that receiving stuff but even then 
In 2019, Max Borgi had, I'm looking at his all-purpose running, he had 1,435 yards in uh, 13 games. And that was as a as a as a sophomore. Okay, which is it's good. But you look at Kyron Williams last year and in, in, in just 12 games. And Kyron Williams had, I'm, I'm pulling his numbers up now. In 12 games, Kyron Williams had his all-purpose yards had 1438 yards per carry. And he had significantly, you know, he had he had uh trying to hear 13, 14 touchdowns in 12 games. So very similar production, but yet Kyron Williams isn't even a name to watch. So when I look at this, I just kind of I kind of chuckle uh, at, at some of these names. Frank Gore Jr. from Southern Miss is on this list. Bijan Robinson is a name to watch. I mean, if you want to talk about a guy that should be on that list as a young player that's up and coming, he's that guy. So I just look at these lists and I say, and, and to your question, there was a question about this. Are they listing players eligible for the NFL next season? No, they're not. Uh, number one, Kyler, uh, Eric Gilbert is in the same class as Michael Mayer. They're both sophomores. There were other sophomores on this list. Uh, Deuce Vaughn, I believe, is is just going to be a sophomore this year. Tank Bigsby is going to be a true sophomore this year. He's in Michael Mayer's class. So this is not a draft. That's the first thing I thought of is this, this draft eligible, guys, because then it would make sense to not have Michael Mayer. But to not have Kyron Williams just to me seems a little – insane so i i look at this to me when you know it got me thinking like who do i think are notre dame players that deserve to be top 10 in, in their position coming back i think the two that they got are correct i think that uh kyron williams to me is one of the 10 best returning running backs in the country when you look at his versatility as a runner and pass catcher and pass blocker he was a much better pass blocker by the end of the year although still needs work but i think he projects to have a big year michael mayer certainly should be in that conversation then you think about like who are some other players that 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 should be top 10. I don't know if there's anyone that I would put now as a top 10 guy, but some guys that I think could emerge as top 10 guys. I think Jason Adamiola could emerge as a top 10 defensive tackle this season with a big year. Um, you know, Drew White's an interesting player. His production could end up being really good. He could take a jump this year. I'm curious to see how he's going to do. You know, you look at some other positions, you know, could could one of could Blake Fisher emerge as one of those guys with a big freshman year? I think that'd be asking a lot. You know, is Isaiah Foskey, you know, one of the ends, could they emerge? So I think there's some guys that could be in the conversation, but right now I think it's it's um it's a it's a no-brainer that Kyron Williams and Michael Mayer should have been on there. And I think especially Michael Mayer. I, I think there's some really good backs coming back next year. And I think you could make a case that okay, I don't agree with you, but it's not as absurd not having Kyron on there, even though I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's correct, okay? So I would have him in my top 10. Uh, I don't think it's correct, but I, like I said, I also think you could say, okay, well, there's a case to be made for him not to be on it. Um, there was a, there so but but the tight end one is just I've seen most of those tight ends and there and there, there's maybe one or two guys you'd consider being on Michael Mayer's level and that's it. So that's that's it for today. That's what we talk, we're going to talk about today. So now I'm going to take a drink of coffee or cup, drink of tea, and we're going to answer some questions. So I'm going to scroll back up to the top here and uh, go through some different things. Tommy Leonard brought up good little piece on them Riley Wildcats. There was, if you check out my Twitter account, it's at CoachD178. There was a story in the local news about Vince D'Addario's baseball team, and that's obviously Vince is the is our co-host of the podcast normally. And they did a feature on – he has a, a girl on his baseball team, uh, Savannah, and she's actually a really good player. 
and and um they had they did a feature on her actually vince called a i think it was a late inning bunt like a squeeze bunt uh, with her at the plate to drive in a game-winning run in an upset of a team that they were expected to lose to the other day. So really good feature on 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 her. Vince talked about it, so I'm glad that you're able to watch that. Um, you know, Vince rocking the upside down shades. I'm going to give him a hard time on on that one, but uh, you know that that that. But it was a really good deal. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on my Twitter page. So let's dive into some questions. Lauren Hamilton asks. If the D-line is the strength of the defense this year, can the pressure from the rush make life easier for the newer DBs, and do you think this will happen? So this is a great question, Lauren, because I've, I've always felt the defensive line is going to do more to define the quality of the secondary than vice versa. If you have a great secondary but a mediocre defensive line, you're going to struggle even against the pass. If you have a great defensive line and a mediocre secondary, you're going to be pretty still pretty good on defense. And I think Notre Dame's going to be better than mediocre in the secondary this year, but I think this is going to be a really, really productive defensive line. I think it's a, a bit under of an undersized unit that's very aggressive and athletic, which fits perfectly into Marcus Freeman's defensive philosophy. You've got a guy like Jason Adamiola stepping into a, a prominent role. Myron Tungavolo, I, I thought, looked great at defensive end this year, and I think his body type is more built for that position, so they've dropped weight off of him. He's leaner. I was told by a couple sources this was a couple months ago when they first made the move that part of the reason they made the move is Myron kept getting down into the 260s. No matter how much he tried to put the weight on, he was having a hard time keeping that weight on. And so when you have to pump that weight back on, it's going to it's gonna sap some of your conditioning. It's going to sap some of your athleticism. So now that he's down to a more natural weight, he's quicker, He's and he can go faster, he can go longer. So he can be as quick at snap 45 as he was at snap five, which in the past, once Myron got past like 30, 35 snaps, his play just started to really teeter off. So I think this is going to help him quite a bit. I think that Kurt Heinisch is just going to keep doing what he's doing. I love the Vipers. We talked about that earlier in the show, Lauren. I think that's going to provide a rush. We talked about Riley Mills. We didn't even talk about Jacob Lacey. We haven't talked much about Howard Cross, Gabriel Rubio, Nana Osafa Mensa, which I know somebody asked about. I think this has a chance to be a really good line, but also Marcus Freeman likes to blitz his linebackers at times too, and there's a lot of athleticism there. So when you can pressure the quarterback consistently, it allows you to do a couple things. It allows you to, number one, you can play off, which then says, hey, you know, you got to get the ball out quickly, and then you can rally to the football, and it limits your, your, your big place down the field. Or, and this is what I think Notre Dame is going to do, it allows you to be more aggressive with your coverages to take away the quick throws, which then in turn says, well, if you're going to beat us on the ball, you got to beat us down the field. But the only way you can beat us down the field is if you can protect your quarterback long enough to get throws off. And I think that's one thing that we're going to see a lot of, which, you know, now it's, it's the mark, your, your margin for error is a lot smaller as a quarterback when you're getting pressured and you have to throw the ball downfield. It is hard to get the juice that you need on the ball. It's hard to get the accuracy you need on the ball. When you've got guys coming at you, and then the more you get hit as a quarterback, the more your internal clock speeds up and you start getting rid of the ball a little bit quicker. And then if you have athletic, smart, instinctive safeties, which I think Notre Dame has, now all of a sudden those guys can start jumping on some throws. And we saw this at times in 2018. Even a great, a really good college quarterback like Eric Dungy was rushing some throws early because he was worried about the pass rush. And then you allow Jalen Elliott to read your eyes, step in front of a ball, pick it off and set up a score as part of a blowout of a team that, that won 10 games that year. So 
I think that's going to lead to not only the cornerbacks being more effective because now they can be more aggressive and teams don't have as much time, but it's going to allow Houston Griffith and Kyle Hamilton to, to make more plays on the ball because as you're getting rid of the ball quicker, they're coming downhill. Their eyes are on everything. Their eyes are on the routes. Their eyes are on the quarterback. And if a quarterback's dropping back and his eyes are right here and he starts to throw, they're going to be able to jump that. And you're going to see quarterbacks not be as able to look guys off because of that pressure. And that's going to allow guys to be more effective. So I, I think that is something where, to your point, the pass rush, if it's as good as I think it can be this year, is going to is gonna make life easier on the secondary, give the secondary a lot more confidence, allow them to be more aggressive, and so you're not as worried about it. Now, the trade-off is you're, you're going to give up some big plays at times. You just are. But I can live with that if the trade-off is a lot more plays. I've said this about offense. Look, if you're an aggressive offense, you're going to turn the ball over sometimes. And that's okay. You can live with it if it's a part of a, an overall aggressive philosophy that also means you're making a lot more plays. Doesn't mean you want to be sloppy and give up a bunch of big plays or turn it over a bunch. But there's a certain level of mistakes or big plays you can live with if you're also then dominant in those other instances. So that's a that's a very, very good question. Let's go down here. Some more questions. Okay, D-Rock says, full capacity here at Georgia Tech this year. Uh, heard two full capacity at Florida State. I, I fully expect Florida State to be at full capacity this year. I, I'll be absolutely shocked. If uh, this, with everything that, that, that Governor DeSantis is doing as far as opening things back up, Florida State is a state school, not a private school. So I would imagine that, that you're going to definitely see um, that stadium is going to be full. Uh, now, Georgia Tech, my question that one is, I was under the impression that Georgia Tech was a home game this year. So, D-Rock, are you saying um, that you're something about Notre Dame? Are you hearing something about Notre Dame or or – I'm I'm just curious as to kind of what your what your the second part the part about Georgia Tech was. John Klimek asks if the offensive line can hold up and a tight end doesn't need to stay in line and Indy can stretch sideline to sideline. Mayor can be dominant. I think Mayor can be dominant from an attached tight end alignment as well. But that's also partly why Notre Dame went with some two tight end looks last year was to allow Mayor to be more of a free releaser. So Mayor's, for example, his route percentage usage percentage on snaps played last year was like fifty nine percent. Whereas Tommy Trumbull was like 37, Brock Wright was in the 20s, which means they, they just didn't run routes very often. So they use those guys to pass protect. Part of what Notre Dame needs to be able to do is they need to be able to adjust their, their, their protections in a way that allows them to do more free releases, which means all five out. And then, of course, you have to have some you know some calls in there to if they are able to blitz, you, you've got places you can get the ball out to. Uh, whether it be blitz beaters built into your packages, whether it be blitz adjustments, some teams will do that. Uh, or just knowing that the type of your, your you know, look, if they bring this guy, we know they can't cover this. That's your check down. You go to that and, and then mix it up. And, and at times you're going to use Michael Mayer in protection because if Michael Mayer is in protection and those safeties are going to get real aggressive, well, if Mayer's not releasing on the route, it's probably a run. You bring them down and you can throw it over their head. So th there's going to be times for that. But to your point, John, you know, the offensive line has to hold up. But part of that too is, is the, is the system. You have to have a system that's geared towards route concepts that allow you to, to do some free releases. A lot of times that's going to be quick game. Other times it's going to be moving the pocket. Uh, other times it's going to be maybe some deeper throws with some short stuff built in if they blitz. So I would definitely think we're going to see Michael Mayer continue to be used at a high rate when it comes to, to route running, which we saw last year. I think if they want to keep a tight end in, I think we're going to see more of them going to 12 personnel 
and keeping that second tight end in the block like they did last year. Maddie K, 55. I know we're talking about the sophomores, but I want to get your opinion on the guy in the transfer portal, and it's the OSU guy, Tyreek Johnson. I think he could fit at Notre Dame. Thoughts? You know, he was a he was a highly ranked kid from Florida. You know, I was I was never I was never enamored with Tyreek Johnson. Uh, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I thought he's a very athletic guy. I didn't think he was necessarily a great football player. I thought he was probably more of an offensive player than a defensive player. I don't know if I would necessarily make a run at him as a corner right now at him. I mean, I, again, very athletic, a lot of upside, but I'm not sure if I would if I would go that route. I would certainly – well, let me say this. I would at least call him. I'd do some talking. I'd do some digging. I'd try to research and, and get a hold of him, maybe talk to his high school coach, but it, it wouldn't be a situation where I'd be deadlocked into we have to get this guy and, and he's a no-brainer. I don't think it's that kind of transfer situation. I'd do some research on it. But my initial thought would be to to not to not do it. That would be my my initial reaction to Tyreek Johnson. I don't want Notre Dame beginning in the habit of always looking for transfers. You know, build up and coach the guys you have. That to me is going to be the key for Notre Dame uh, to to really build this team up. I mean, if you look at Alabama, they'll take some transfers. They just took Ohio State transfer, right? Ohio State will take some transfers. Clemson will take some transfers, but it's a it's a small number. It's very targeted uh, towards either an elite player or the position where they feel they need some depth or they need some experience. It's not this volume of transfers, and so far Notre Dame has been very targeted, and I hope that they remain that way. And more often than not, I'm going to say I don't want to transfer. I mean, Tyreek Johnson is not a proven player, in my opinion. He had five tackles last year, had three tackles as a freshman. He's not a guy that's going to come in and solidify anything. It's not like Nick McLeod's situation. Now, could he end up being a difference maker? Sure. I mean, he's a he's a he's a great athlete. There's no doubt about that. But it's just more about does he solve anything that's a, currently a problem? I don't think that he does. I don't think that he necessarily answers any questions that ex- currently exist on the roster any more than Cam Hard or the current freshman or whatever do. He would be attractive from the standpoint of he was a five-star recruit and there's that element of, ooh, five-star. But there's also a reason he didn't pan out at Ohio State. And Ohio State is not exactly loaded with great corners last year. I mean, Sean Wade was a mess. He wasn't a great player last year. You know, their cornerback position is good, but I don't think it's I don't think it's elite by any stretch. And he couldn't he couldn't really get on the field for them. So, you know, I just I I'm I, Recruiting rankings-wise, I get the attraction, but he just didn't show me anything in two years there that um, uh, that that makes me want to makes me want to to be fired up about him. Old Grim says it looks like it's Reese's chance to shine. I hope that that's his opportunity this year. I hope that we we see it. All right, Florida, Texas already full capacity, pretty much anywhere. I because the Rangers, I think their opening home game this year, I believe, was full capacity, and they've. They've been full capacity all season. Georgia's getting to that point, too. Uh, let's see here. Some more questions. Notre Dame 2164. I apologize you didn't see that. I put it up around 11 a.m., uh, so I'm not I'm not sure if, if YouTube didn't, didn't put it out or not. But uh, I apologize. But, hey, better late than never, right? And that's the nice thing about these podcasts is they're always archived, so you can go back and watch it. Okay, Tommy Leonard says, I can't wait to see Jordan and Foskey crushing off the edge. I agree. I think this could be a really dynamic duo. And and, and you can use them in so many different ways, together, stacked, opposite sides, in a rotation. 
I think if those two, if those two kids are as good as we think they are, or as, at least as good as I think they are, then I, I think this defensive line is going to be really good at getting after the quarterback. Dylan Hoffman, um, Notre Dame uh, 2021 class got two Gatorade players of the year in their respective states. Well done. Both should have success at the next level. So Audric Estime was named the, the Gatorade State Player of the Year in New Jersey. He had a monster, monster senior season. And then Prince Kali uh, had a really good uh, – or also had a great, great monster season in Tennessee. On both sides of the ball, he was named the Gatorade State Player of the Year in Tennessee. So certainly tremendous accomplishments for those two players who are not or who are not obviously early enrollees for Notre Dame. And somebody brought up a, a really good idea, podcast idea to me the other day about kind of going through the early the, the guys who weren't early enrollees and sort of ranking how I expect them to kind of be this year in production. So we're going to do something like that here in this offseason. I'm always looking for ideas for podcasts that things about y'all want to talk about. So you can either, you know, don't leave it in the chat because I'm probably not going to see it or at least I can't archive it. You know, after a day, those things kind of go away. Shoot me an email at brian at irishbreakdown.com. You can send me something DM on Twitter at CoachD178. You can leave something on our Facebook group. If you go to the Notre Dame Irish Breakdown fan page, uh, you can leave it there. Um, and uh, and let me know some ideas that you may have. Somebody brought up the other day about you know the uh, uh, really defining a rover. I thought that was a great idea. So we'll, we'll dive more into that. So uh, it can be a specific topic. It can be a football 101. It can be a recruiting. Just leave me an idea. And if it's not going to work, I won't do it. But I love the ideas because at the end of the day, we're trying to provide content that y'all want to hear. And so if there's things that you all want to hear about, then we're going to talk about it. Lauren Hamilton says, I think Nano Safa Mensa will be in on that rush too. Yeah, that's an interesting one because you know, Nana flashed on the practice film, and, and I think Nana's a talented kid. He obviously his development was stunted a little bit by the the camp injury he he suffered, but he's a he's big and strong. He's really filled out his upper body impressively. It may be tough for him to get a ton of reps this year, Lauren, because of Myron Tungvalu and, and Justin Adimiola's presence. You know, but if I was Notre Dame, I, I would try to find a role for him. Maybe it's a short yardage situation. Maybe it's you know, you're going to get him in early. If you if you got a big lead, you get him in early. You don't wait till the fourth quarter, but maybe you start working him in at halftime if you got a big lead on Toledo or Purdue or or somebody like that and get him some early work because it's also about building not just if someone gets injured, if Myron gets hurt, if Justin gets hurt, you need Nana to be ready and you want him to have some, some experience under his belt, not just mop-up minutes either, but also preparing for next year, you know, getting him that opportunity so his game can really take off next year and then him and Justin can form a really potent group next year so i think that is certainly an important thing for notre dame to do uh tommy leonard i'm looking forward to the d-line parties in the backfield all season this year i certainly hope that that is the tr that is true notre dame 2164 i am so ready to see the chaos this defensive front seven causes for their offenses and and, and we are too um and uh no matter how much uh they make fun of my phrase i do like my phrase um about a structured chaos. I very, very much like that. And it makes a lot of sense about what his defense. Searcher Green says Batelho was a linebacker in high school, wasn't he? Sort of. He was he was very much in high school what I'm saying I would like him to be at Notre Dame. There were times he was rushing off the edge. There were times he was playing an off-ball linebacker. He did a lot of different things for his high school. So, yes, he, um, he was good. And Tommy also asked, how was he in coverage? He was good. He's a good zone cover guy. He's not a guy that you're going to have playing man- against running backs and slot receivers. Could he could he run with a tight end? I, I think probably most tight ends he can run with. But he's more about just being a, a smart player that can get up underneath, you know, curl route, can get up, you know, can drop in the middle of the field and take away an in-cut. Those kind of things are really more of what his coverage strengths are going to be. 
Kenny Moore says, I thought Baker was going to lock up a, a starting tackle spot this spring. I no longer feel that. Yeah, he he struggled with that speed off the edge, which is surprising when you consider how athletic he is. But I just feel like his footwork is just not where it needs to be. He doesn't have the confidence in it. Right now, he's clearly the third tackle. But I do think a good offseason. I think sometimes I think for guys like Tosh Baker, who are just so gifted, that you need to struggle sometimes early. And that struggle then leads – to to character growth, but also more importantly, football growth. Like you say, okay, here's what I struggled with. You get in the film room and you say, okay, why did I constantly get beat on the outside? Okay, my first step was terrible every time. You know, I didn't get much of a kick step, and then my second step was short. And by the second step, that guy's passed me. And you really work on those things. And I think that's something that's going to benefit Tosh Baker a lot. I think he's going to make big growth. And maybe he doesn't start this year, but He's a guy that's going to need playing time. He's going to need that opportunity to get some reps. And, and again, like to see guys like that not just be, okay, it's 35 to nothing with five minutes left. Let's get him in the game. But, you know, start to strategically put some of those guys in. So if you're up, you know, 27 to three at halftime, maybe you you pull lug at halftime and save the wear and tear on his back. Or maybe you rotate uh, Tosh Baker in there a little bit and let him get some of those opportunities to gain much needed experience and develop as a player. Cause playing is always the best way to, 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 to develop as a player. Uh, Liam gaming says anything on Jay Brunel curious. You never hear his name. He's had a really tough first year at Notre Dame. He has had multiple injuries slash um, uh, illnesses that have kind of kept him from developing physically developing. He battles. He's a good player, but those those injuries really set him back. And when you're in a, a depth chart that's as good as Notre Dame's at receiver, and you miss a month for whatever the reason, it's going to be hard to to catch up. And that's what he's been doing all spring was basically just playing catch up. So he he's buried pretty far down there. But if if he stays at Notre Dame, I expect Jay to battle and push his way back up because he's a smart, talented player and he's a much better athlete than than people give him credit for. All right, here we go. Old Grim says, I want to see Pine have chances to play on important downs. It's going to be hard if he's not the starter, though. You know, that, and that's the problem with – it's one thing to get a, – a, a, and then the other part of that makes it difficult, Old Grim, is that he has such a similar skill set to Jack Cohn. It doesn't make as much sense to rotate them as it does Tyler Buckner. When you put Tyler Buckner in the game for a limited package, you're bringing in a quarterback who has a distinctly different skill set. I don't know if it worked as well to have two guys sort of rotating that have the same skill set. I don't think it has a whole lot of advantage there. Kenny Moore says, I have zero faith in Dell when it comes to developing our receivers. So far, I mean, there's not a lot of evidence I can point to to dispute what you're saying, Kenny. I mean, that's the disappointing thing. I hope that changes. And I like Coach Alexander. I think he's a good guy. I think he's a smart guy. I just don't think his plan, his plan of attack when developing young players has just not been good. But I think he has the ability to do it. Um, so we'll see if he, we'll see what happens. Okay. And this goes back to the question old Grim brought up. Would you like to see pine get meaningful playing time this year? Even if cone is named the starter, it's similar to what I said about some other positions. Yes. I would, I would like to see situations where, but I guess it kind of depends on, I think early in the year, I'd say yes, because you need to have him prepared in case cone in case cone goes down. Later in the year, I'd probably say no if you feel like Tyler Buckner's developing because ultimately I think they view Tyler Buckner as the quarterback of the future, not Drew Pine. I think Drew could change that, obviously, but 
early in the year, similar situation. If you're up, you know, 34 to three and it's late third quarter and you want to keep your, you know, keep most of your starting lineup in great. Keep Kyron. Maybe you put Tyree at running back and maybe you get a, a, a couple extra snaps for Kane Barong. You put Tosh Baker at right tackle, uh, you know, it, it couple things like that, but leave your receivers for the most part in there. Leave at least three or four of your starting offensive linemen in there and then put Drew Pine in the game and let him run it from that point on to where it's still sort of work with the first team offense. Now, it's not a meaningful snap to, to your point, but it's it's good snaps and you let them run the offense. You don't just have them hand it off every other play. I don't think that happens very much. Um, <laughs> Martin Demo, this is by far the best the best. Uh, response of the day when you sabotage your hospital's entire network just to cancel a meeting so you can watch ib i love it priorities that's exactly right i'm going to show this to vince because he missed the show yesterday uh tuesday to mow the lawn you have your priorities in the right place my friend and i greatly 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 appreciate it um a lot of love for drew pine here i definitely get it uh searcher green however says i'd rather see buckner get meaningful series and pine get all the cleanup time Again, the, the the thing you have to decide is, do you feel Tyler Buckner is ready to take over the offense and be the every-down player should Jack Cohn go down? Right now, he is not, in my opinion. Now, could that change this summer in the fall camp? Absolutely. Tyler Buckner, I've said, five-star talent. But if you don't think, as you get to the middle of fall camp and Tyler Buckner is not ready to run your entire offense, meaning everything that you need to do for a quarterback to do, should Jack Cohn go down, then early in the season, Pine needs to get those snaps because he would be the guy that would step in as a starter if Cone goes down, and then Buckner would maintain the role that he has. If you get to the point in time where you feel like Buckner has developed to the level where he could step in as a starter should Cone go down, then you can say, okay, yes, we'll do that. Uh, but you have to make sure you're preparing for the future as well as the present, and it can be challenging. Sometimes I feel like Coach Kelly has erred on the side of of preparing too much or focusing too much on the present and not enough on player development the way that he should, especially on offense. But at the same time, you 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 still need to also have an eye towards the future as well, and that can be a difficult line to 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 toe it at times. D Rock says, any possibilities of who our punt returners will be? You mean other than Matt Salerno? I think that uh, we, I've seen Kyron Williams get opportunities back there. Lawrence Keyes will get some opportunities back there, and Lorenzo Styles. I think those are the four guys that I would expect to get the most opportunities returning punts in fall camp. And then, you know, whoever pr- pr- proves to be most effective with fair catches uh, and catching the ball will probably win the job. But hopefully I'm wrong on that. Um, Matthew Ramirez, will Notre Dame ever have a dominant defensive line? Yes, they had one in 2018. And I would argue that for uh, big chunks of 2017, they had it. They had a uh, elite offense or d- a dominant defensive line in 2012. Uh, so yes, they've had dominant defensive lines recently. I think that their 2021 defensive line will also be dominant. All right, Brian Denbo says, I think if Coach Reese and Coach uh, or Coach Kelly and Coach Reese put the responsibility in Coach Alexander's lap, he gets it done and or he has to go. You give Coach A the chance to prove he can correct this mistakes. 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. Sit him down. So here's the expectations. We need to make sure we're coaching the entire depth chart. It's up to you to get it done. And then I think if they, you know, and then hold him accountable. And I think he's capable of doing it. I'd like to see him do it. I think Coach Alexander's a really good dude. I've never heard a negative thing said about him, 
even from some people that maybe would have reasons to say negative things about him. I've never heard anyone say a negative word about Coach Alexander as a person, ever. And I think he's a smart football coach. I just think right now he's not doing a good job. And there are some reasons why I think that, that, that from some things I've heard that I can't really share. But if he can get out of his way and kind of get over some of that, and just say, hey, look, I don't care what the coach says to me or if he jumps on me in practice or jumps me in the game. That's part of the deal when you work for Brian Kelly. If you don't like that, go coach somewhere else. But you suck it up and deal with it like every other coach does, and you coach your guys up, and you and you you know, you know take those arrows when you need to take those arrows. And Notre Dame 2164, this is about when I started talking about Michael Mayer not being the top 10. Yes, they did not have the top 10, and yes, I agree. Michael Mayer has a chance to a good chance to be the best tight end in America this year. And I would also like to see their explanation, but I don't think that we're going to see it. Audrey McSuga, I hope I'm saying that right. I'm going to take a shot at that. But Audrey says, could uh, could they be weighing how prolific the O-line was last year against player performance? Uh, are you? I'm not sure what you're talking about. I imagine this was in response to something that uh, that was in the show. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that, Audrey? Because I don't, I don't, I don't know what that was in response to in the show. And then Audrey says also, so I'll answer some of your other questions while while I wait for that response, Audrey. What do you think this um, this far will be the biggest flaw for the Notre Dame team and the key opponents will exploit? I think right now, the offensive line on offense, I think that you're going to see teams try to attack the offensive line and basically say, we're not going to let them run the ball. We're going to try to throw off their timing in the run game. We're not going to let them run the ball, throw off timing in the run game. And when they drop back the pass, you get to the quarterback. And, and I think that's the big thing is take advantage of the fact that Notre Dame's offensive line is very inexperienced. Offensively, that's what that's what opponents are going to go after. I think Notre Dame opponents are also going to say, you know, there's a lot of unproven receivers after Michael Mayer. So early on, we're going to make somebody else beat us. We're not going to let Michael Mayer and Kyron Williams beat us. You're going to have to beat us with Brain Lindsay and Avery Davis and Lawrence Keys and Kevin Austin and and hopefully Xavier Watts learns those styles and those guys, but you're not going to beat us with those two guys. Defensively, it's the secondary. I think I think the secondary and then trying to take advantage of the linebackers and coverage. I think those are the two things that you're going to see opponents look to exploit early in the year. Will they be able to do it? Is going to be dependent on whether or not the defensive line is as good as advertised. But if the defensive line has any, you know, falter if they falter at all or if they struggle after the quarterback, then then teams are going to to really look to take advantage of of getting after that that secondary and taking advantage of the inexperience in the secondary places, but then also the unproven nature of a lot of their corners. I mean, he, their most experienced proven guy is Tariq Bracey, and he's coming off of a, of a mental collapse last year. So you're going to want to go after him too. So I think that's how that's the flaws that teams will look to exploit. And the good news is, is Notre Dame knows it. I mean, I, I've talked to enough sources to say they, they, they're aware that those are the areas they need to continue to build up. Okay. Uh, Audrey says it will be good to have Cohen at quarterback during games full capacity, given his experience. And yeah, he's played in some big games. Uh, you know, he's, he's a guy that's played in the Rose bowl. He's a guy that's played in the big 10 championship game. He's played uh, against Ohio state twice. He's a, he's a, he's an experienced player for sure. Okay. John climax says, Brian, I was speaking more to the all five out mayor and Williams and route. Good stuff. Yeah. That's it. I, th- I think we'll need to see more of that, but it's going to require a little bit of adjusting of the, protections i think notre dame was was relatively basic with their protections last year most of their protections were at least a six-man protection six-man protection requires that at least a tight end or at least a running back or tight end uh, be in you should call those mic protections because then that guy's responsible for 
the mic to to the outside linebacker. So it's like this guy to that guy. If this guy comes, I pick him up first, and then the quarterback knows that that outside backer's is his if that guy blitzes. If this guy doesn't come and the outside backer comes, then I step up and take the outside backer. And, and that's basically how mic protection works, simplistically speaking. So they did a lot of that kind of stuff. They would do some slides with a six-man protection, so the line's sliding to a direction, and then the running back will pick up or the tight end will pick up somebody from that side. That They need to be able to have a more robust and sound five-man protection scheme. They would also do seven-man protections and at times eight-man protections, but I, those are more play actions trying to take a shot kind of situations because if it's an eight-man protection, then there's only two guys out in a route. So to your point, yes, that, that, that there needs to be some alterations of the protections in order to take advantage of of the the so when I you know the the five the five man release type of situation that you're talking about. Spartan B88, can you speak to the limitations of non-graduate transfers to Notre Dame? My understanding is credits aren't always accepted. It can make it difficult for elite players to come. That is correct. Notre Dame obviously is going to be very strict with what they're going to accept. And the danger is, so if you're a freshman, for example, so we'll speak specifically about this. If you're a freshman and you went somewhere else and you took this generic classes that some schools foot, you know, kind of push football players towards or athletes towards and Notre Dame doesn't accept five of those credits, five of those classes, then there's a chance you're not eligible to play that next year because you don't have enough credits to play at Notre Dame. So because Notre Dame only accepted X amount, whereas you need 24, you have to have passed 24 credit hours and have a GPA above. I think it's, it's like a, it's like a weighted, it's like you can actually be a little bit below, I believe, a 2-0 as a freshman, but then as you get older, it has to get higher. I believe is how it goes. But if you don't have enough credits at that grade, you ha- you're you not eligible. And, and that can happen to, to as you get older, too. As a junior, going in junior, you have to have 48 hours. You have to have you know 48 credit hours, successful credit hours. Well, if Notre Dame doesn't accept se- seven or eight of your classes because you took you know underwater basket weaving and piano and you know, and, and gym class for college kids or whatever the case may be, Notre Dame's not going to take that, nor should they. And so that can make it, um, that can make it very difficult for non-graduates to, to get into Notre Dame. And and that's why Notre Dame has always been a little bit of a tough place for non-grad non-graduates to transfer to. doesn't make it impossible, but it, it can be, it can be a challenge for sure. What is your opinion of Oscar Delp? The only thing I've seen of, uh, yeah, I don't have a very high opinion of Oscar Delp. And, um, you know, he's not a guy that Notre Dame is going to be looking at and not a guy that I think very much of. Lauren Hamilton asks, does the one-time transfer rule mean you can transfer without sitting out a year one time or you can transfer one time period? It means you can transfer one time without penalty, Lauren. So, you know, if a guy, if Jordan Johnson transfers to Central Florida, he can play, he'll, he'll be playing in 2021. If he doesn't like it there and then transfers to Missouri, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just using this example since he was the most recent transfer. If he transfers to a year later, doesn't like it, and goes to Missouri, he'd then have to sit out a year. So it's one-time transfer rule, meaning one time without penalty. John Rich says, just a fun fact, Mitchell Evans is a secret dual threat weapon. He was a first-team All-State Ohio punter, averaged 43.1 yards per punt. I actually did know that one, John. I didn't I didn't know he was a punter until I saw some highlights of his senior year punting. But he's a very intriguing prospect. And I'm becoming more I'm becoming more um 
high on him as as the more I see him. All right, some disagreement with me. I like that. Dynasty ISP says, I disagree about the transfer portal. I think Notre Dame should embrace it because every season it becomes more normal for talent to transfer. I'm not saying they don't embrace it. I'm just saying you have to be smart about it. Look, there's a reason that those programs that are winning don't take many transfers because in football, it's it's so important that everybody kind of be working towards the same thing. It's It's like a dance. It's like everybody has to be working in unison. And there's usually a reason guys are transferring. There's a reason the guy either got in trouble or he he was not as maybe not being effective. Sometimes guys get screwed over. We've seen that. I've talked about that at Notre Dame before. But more often than not, guys are transferring for a reason. And most of the players that are transferring are not guys that are difference makers. They're just not. And the, the high-profile transfers in recent years have been Joe Burrow, obviously, was that guy. Justin Fields was that guy. We saw... Um, Kyler Murray was a transfer. Baker Mayfield was a transfer, but that's one position. And Notre Dame took a quarterback, and I was all for that. But you, you know, if a if a guy is a a graduate transfer, for example, and he's transferring to Notre Dame, he's transferring because he wasn't good enough to go to the NFL or be a high pick in the NFL. That's not a needle mover for me. I'd rather you develop the young, talented player. I had no problem with Notre Dame taking Nick McLeod last year because it was needed. Your cornerback depth chart was not in the place where you're going to be effective. And so there's always a time and a place for it. But what can get what can happen is you as a coach can get real lazy with your development. And that's what I think happened with Ben Skoranek. Instead of developing the younger players, they went with, a, in my opinion, a solid at best player and just threw him into the starting lineup because he was easier. There was less coaching involved. And that's the mistake that they can make. And you say, well, okay, well, this guy's not quite ready yet, so let's let's go get a transfer that can step into the lineup. At times, that's going to be a, a smart idea, but it's not something you should do often. And the problem is, is that you can get into situations where you can get real lazy with development. And then it, once you start that, that trend at a position, it can now start to become more and more prominent. And then there's years where, where you're not going to have a guy to get. And you and these guys that you didn't develop aren't going to be ready, and now you're screwed. So you, you can say I need to embrace it, but what I'm telling you is, it's not something that you want to build your team around. I coached at a level where transfers there was no penalty for transferring, and guys would transfer in and out, and it can be very disruptive to your team building, your team unity to bring in transfers on a consistent basis and to do it from a high volume standpoint. It can be very, very disruptive to that. So I understand what you're saying about it becoming more normal and all those kind of things, but it's not going to be something, in my opinion, that's going to become normal for programs like Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama. They will get their share of transfers. Notre Dame will get their share of transfers. But it's not going to be something that dominates your roster-building process. It's just not. Not if you want to win. So that's, that's where I would push back a little bit on it. And I've never said ignore the transfer portal or don't bring in transfers. That's not what I said. Okay, uh, Audrey said, meant to get here on Friday, but wondered what you think. If Wimbush was on a Lou Holtz football team, do you think he would have been able to lead the team to the promised land? So this is a tough one because I, I I love Brandon Wimbush as a young man. I think Brandon's a great kid. His fam, I love it. I've gotten a chance to meet his mom, and he's got an uncle that I've talked to a lot, and they're awesome people. And I think Brandon's a first-class young man. The problem is, is Brandon had some struggles at times with hard coaching. And I think that hard coaching caused him to get a little bit sort of down on himself and he lost confidence. 
I don't think that would have flown with Coach Holtz. I mean, the thing about Coach Holtz is he was a hard coach. You had to take hard coaching. And I wonder if Brandon would have had some of those struggles in that regards. Now, to your question, just strictly speaking about talent, absolutely. I mean, he would have he was exactly what Coach Holtz looked for. Dynamic athlete, dynamic runner, huge arm that could throw the ball downfield. And Brandon was actually a pretty good downfield passer. Uh, you know, he he was more his issues were more on the the short stuff, the quick game, things like that. But you know, Brandon was a guy that could could hit a lot of he could hit the deep ball relatively effectively. Now he had one, one particular really bad miss against Miami, uh, but in a lot of instances, Brandon was a very very good deep ball thrower uh, when you, when you look at it. So I I mean I I thought he could do it pretty well. He just wasn't he wasn't an overly accurate guy, but he was aggressive attacking down the field. Uh, and I thought, especially in 2018 and in, in, in some early games, I thought he was even more effective in 2018 throwing the ball down the field than he was the year before. We especially saw that against Michigan. But uh, yeah, he I think he would have fit that t- skill set wise. He'd have fit it well. I just I just don't know if he would have ha- been able to handle the hard the hard coaching as well. Let's see here. Uh, Audrey says, crazy you didn't mention one of the most important players from the sophomores, considering he has such an important job, John John Shannon. Big boys get no love if they aren't 6'8". I'm not sure who you're talking about there. Um, I don't know who you're talking about as far as John Shannon. Um, are you talking about the long, Alex Peitch, the long, Peitch, the long snapper? I'm not sure who you're talking about there, Audrey. Um Oh, okay. Here, so your okay. So your question earlier about the O line thing being from Pro Football Focus. From what I read, there was nothing about okay. We don't think he's going to be good because of the offensive line. And there's some other team got people on there that that have shaky offensive line situations. It was more about their grades and their projection projection of those grades was more of what it was about. So, um, yeah, make that makes sense. But yeah, that wasn't what it was about. Connor O'Doherty says, sorry, uh, don't know if you have mentioned him, but what are your thoughts on Justin Adamiola? I think he could be an absolute, uh, uh, can be an absolute, I would say stud beast based on uh, his production from a lower snap count. Connor, I think the question with a guy like Justin is beast. Oh, yep, there it is right there, beast. Um, The question for a guy like, the the issue for a guy like Justin Adamiola is you don't always know, and this is also true of his brother. Not everybody can take their production at, you know, 10, 15 snaps, and then they play 50 and it automatically translates. Some people in in football, this is just true, are better in a limited capacity because maybe they're, you know, whether it be their motor, their physical limitations, there's all types of things that can factor into that. I don't know yet. And if Justin is going to be as effective playing 35 snaps as he was playing 10 or 15, I I don't know. I think he can. But he's got to prove it. You know, Jason was very effective at times in the past where he would play, you know, 15 to 25 snaps. You know, is he going to be able to be as effective playing 40? We, we don't know. I think he will, but we don't know. But the thing I love about Justin is, you know, he doesn't have the measurables you look for. He's like 6'2", 250. He's got good arm length, but not. he doesn't have like Khalid Kareem, Adi Ogandiji arm length. He's a good athlete. He's not an elite athlete. The thing about Justin is he's just a great football player. I mean, he just his hands are strong. He understands block destruction at an elite level. His size, in some ways, because he's so fundamentally sound, his size helps him because he's so good at getting under the pads of of the bigger tackles. And he's he's really good at finding the ball. He's good at setting the edge. He can find a ball. 
He's got to prove he can be more of a pass rusher than he's, but he's never really been in pass rushing, a lot of pass rushing situations. So, you know, I think Justin's going to be a very key part of the rotation this year, and he's going to need to play well to keep Nana behind him. But I, I really think Justin's going to be a, an important part of what they do on defense this year. Masuga. Okay. I'll get that right, Audrey. My apologies. Zach817 asks, do you think Notre Dame will have a red zone package for Tyler Buckner this uh, this year, considering his running ability, assuming he doesn't start? I'd like to see something like that. Now, you have to be careful because red zone's a pretty important part of it. But look, if you're going to practice it, then I think it could work. And because the, the nice thing for Tyler is as a as in a red zone, you don't often do full field reads in the red zone. It's more of like a one-two read one two kind of one two run type of thing. You know, you could you could utilize the read zone. You can utilize quarterback designed runs more effectively there. Coach Reese has talked about one of the keys to being better in the red zone is running the ball more effectively. Chip Long was very good at making sure you stuck with the red zone with the run in the red zone. And that was and that's why especially when they had Wimbush a quarterback they were so good in the red zone. And that's why Brandon had 14 I think 14 rushing touchdowns in 2017. It helped that you had the offensive lineman you had. But if you go back and look at the numbers a lot, they had more touchdowns in the red zone behind the right side than they did the left side. But when, you know, I think you'd be able to be more effective running the ball, which they weren't. There were so many times last year. I remember one particular series against Georgia Tech where they kind of ran the ball right down the field, get inside the 20. It was drop back, drop back, drop back, and then field goal. And, and to his credit, he looked at that and said, okay, we've got to be more effective running the ball to get in the red zone. We've got to be more effective with getting guys in space and isolations. And I think those are things that Tyler Buckner can effectively do. And if that's his role and you're practicing that consistently, then, yeah, I'd like to see something like that, Zach. I think that could be effective. And you're going to know it in fall camp if he's able to handle that job effectively. And if he does, I think there's a need for that. But then you can also get him in some short yardage situations out in the field that could create some open, some unique opportunities uh, as well. Okay, Audrey says, by the latest Notre Dame logic, this would be the best year for Buckner to get the job considering he's a true freshman and Kelly wouldn't throw the book at him, albeit not the best conditions this year. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we've seen, what we've seen in the past. Um, let's say, uh, Notre Dame 2164, Brian, are you going on Mark Rogers' show anytime soon? I was on there last week. I have not talked to him. He'll just kind of text me and say, hey, can you be on the show tomorrow? Uh, but uh, I'm not sure. I would imagine so. I have fun with him. Mark Mark does a really good job. D-Rock says, with all these transfers throughout CFB, I would think that dur think during the summer, plenty of coaches will be write, revising playbooks and signal calls. I would imagine that that is going to be very true. Stephen B says, first time watching live. Thank you for joining us live. I appreciate you being here with us very, very much. Talk of Buckner getting a package similar to T-Bone 06. Any fear that this could stunt his development if he's focusing on 10 to 15 plays instead of the whole playbook? No, I don't think so because it's not all he's going to do in practice. And and as we talked about, if he if he continues to develop in practice with running the entire offense, at least – not the whole offense, but you know the base offense. So, like, there's there's situational offense, which is like short yardage, goal line, third down, red zone. Then there's your base offense, which is just kind of what you normally do. And so, by base offense, I'm referring to just just the normal situations of football. He's going to get those opportunities and practice to do that. I think the biggest thing for Tyler right now, Stephen, and this is a really good question. I think the biggest thing for Tyler right now is he needs opportunities to play football. 
And him being able to play in those situational instances is going to be good for him because he's going to get to see the live bullets. He's going to get to see the speed of the game. He's going to take hits. And there's going to be opportunities for him to throw the ball. I mean, if he's the red zone quarterback, he's going to have to throw the ball. He can't just be only running. So I, I understand the concern. I do. But that's not all he's going to be doing in practice. And then if he's successful in that role, then later in the year, you try to find some opportunities for him to maybe get in some games in the fourth quarter. Like you'll see situations, and we saw this in 2019 when Notre Dame was blowing out New Mexico. You know, they took Ian Book out relatively early, put Phil Dracovic in. Phil Dracovic made some plays. He threw that bomb to Braden Lindsay, ran a, you know, let him on a couple touchdown drives. And then the last couple of drives, they put Brendan Clark in the game and he threw a touchdown pass to Braden Lindsay in the game. So I think you'll see some situations like that if they can get big enough leads, and hopefully they they'll be good enough on offense to do that. But I think uh, you know I think that's that's where I would say you you could then take advantage of getting him some some opportunities to to really run the whole offense in that regards. Okay, here we go. Let's get some more questions in here. Get running out of questions, so we're, we're going to wrap up here at these last few questions. I think we got four left. Um, oh, so I was right. You were talking about Alex Peitch. I tried to get it right. I got it right. Okay. Uh, Notre Dame 2164 asks, how good is the Saltchuck kid? Look, he's a good player. He He's a top 150 guy, in my opinion. He's a good running back. My my thing is, I just, I don't think he's quite the high-level player that some other people think that he is. I don't view him as a top 50 player. I think, I think Rivals 247 both rank him as a top 50 player. I don't quite see that. I think he's more of a top 100 to 150 guy. He's very good. He's got speed. He's got. He's a tough runner for his size. Catches the ball okay. To me, he's just not quite the, the all-around running back that guys like Dallin Hayden and Nicholas Singleton are. Having said that, if Notre Dame landed him, it'd be a great pickup, and he'd be a really nice compliment to um, to to uh, Jadarian Price. Tommy Leonard says, how does the religious aspect uh, to Indy affect recruiting? I think it depends on the kid. I mean, there's been times in the past where, you know, it's it's been a turnoff for some kids, you know, whether it be a kid was a Muslim or a kid was Mormon or a kid was, you know, not religious at all. And you kind of say, look, this is a part of our institution, but it's not something that's forced on you. That's why we've seen a lot of Mormon kids come to Notre Dame, you know, kids that that, that aren't catholic or aren't christian uh say you know like ryan harris notre dame was a muslim when he came to notre dame and it was one of those things where like look this isn't something that 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 you have to you have to sign a statement of faith to go there like you do maybe like a liberty or something like that notre dame is a catholic institution you do not have to be a catholic to go to notre dame and so notre dame has, has always shown at least in last 10, 15 years since I've really started covering the team has always shown a, a respect for, you know, people that, that either have a different faith denomination or people who don't have a faith background at all. It's more of an academic thing. And then the other kind of, the other stuff is, is, is not as involved. So like I went to, uh, I played football at a Christian school in Virginia my last two years. I went to Atlantic Shores Christian school in my last couple of years to play football, not for the, the religious part of it. Well, for whatever reason, that school sent a lot of kids to Liberty. Well, at Liberty, I believe you had to sign a statement of faith. You had to follow certain rules and regulations and things like that that were geared around your Christian faith. And that's not how Notre Dame is, in my my understanding. So it's not something that is really an issue. And, and 
you know, you'll see kids who, uh, that's our searcher green said, uh, uh, rocket was also a Muslim. So it's never been a situation where Notre Dame shoves that in your face when their focus about the religious aspect is more so about just how to live your life with respect for other people, more so than shoving specific Catholic doctrine at people. Uh, and, and so now it doesn't mean that schools don't use it as a negative against Notre Dame, but kids who have genuine interest in Notre Dame will ask the question. It's explained to them and they move on. Kids that use that as a reason not to go to Notre Dame weren't going to go to Notre Dame anyway. It's just and it's just an excuse that people use just like, oh, it's too far away from home or whatever the case may be. It's a reason that you can use not to go there. But it's usually about really ultimately about football. Octavio Roca, what do you think are the chances that either Watts or Bruno transfer? I, I don't expect Xavier Watts to transfer right now. I, I don't. I don't think that. I think if Xavier was going to transfer, he'd have already done it by now. Jay Brunel, I'm not sure of. I don't know where Jay's head is at right now. I think that you know, anytime you battle injuries, it can be frustrating. But again, he hasn't decided to transfer yet, and and where some other guys have. So, what are the chances? I don't think it'd be fair for me to say that. Uh, just because I don't know specifics of their situations, but but with Xavier, I, I feel good about right now the plan being he's going to stay at Notre Dame and continue to battle. I, I I think that that is what I would expect from him. Jay, I just don't remember, uh, don't know enough about his situation and where he is with his recovery and development, those type of things. But look, kids are competitive and they want to play. And I think every kid that's that's not starting right now is thinking about okay, is there something better for me out there? Um, that's just that's just what's going to happen. And D-Rock, remember, hit the like, share, notification buttons. Great show and go Rivers. Thank you very much for that. Okay. So a couple things right here. D, uh, Michael Morris, do you think they should put Foskey uh, and Bortelho on the field together? Sorry about the spelling. Yeah, I think they I think they should at times. It's not something that I think Notre Dame is going to do, make a regular thing of. They're not going to do it all the time. But I definitely think there's instances on third down. Um, there's times in a base defense where you can come out with them on the field together with Patel kind of playing one of the off-ball linebacker spots. If you're going to go like a 3-3, you can have him, and you should technically have three defensive ends on the field with, with Patel and, uh, and the thing about that is, so here's the unique thing about what Notre Dame can do when they line up like with their 3-3 look. So if you have Foskey, Heinish and, and Myron Tungvaloa as your as your big end, and then you've got Jordan Patelho as sort of a, a sort of a kind of a, a third linebacker inside linebacker. You can line up like that on one snap, but then on the very next snap, you can put you can put Foskey at the other end, slide Myron Tungvaloa inside, and he's not a situation where he's an every down D tackle now because he's lost the weight, but he can play inside in certain looks. And now you've got those two guys on the edge, and you can you can do some different wrinkles there as well. So I think they should use them together at times. It's not something I would do all the time, but definitely some instances where you're going to see it, especially, as I said, on third down and in passing situations, so like two-minute drills, things like that. Uh, Audrey, thank you for answering all of the random questions as always, and appreciate you being part of the show and asking the questions. Look, we, I'm here to talk learning football, and if you all have questions – we're definitely, definitely going to talk about it. Stephen B says, John, totally agree. Snaps are good. I just remember Zaire commenting that he fears Kelly might focus too much on his running, which would stunt his growth as a passer. That was a little bit of a different situation because Malik was a was still developing as a passer, and Malik was always really cognizant of, of 
his running being overused. I don't think Malik would have had an issue as a freshman being in that role because then it would have given him an opportunity to still play. But I think it was more of once he became a starter doing more running, you know, so then he's carrying the ball 15 times, 20 times a game and and not doing enough passing. I think that was more of Malik's Malik's concern, if I remember correctly. So that is going to be it for today's show. We are out of questions. I appreciate everybody being a part of the show today. Um, we are going to be back tonight at eight o'clock Eastern. I was going to do it yesterday, but I had some stuff come up and I could not get to it. But tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern, we are going to have our, our weekly, nightly recruiting conversation. We're going to go watch some film, talk about some 2023 quarterbacks to know. We're going to watch some film. And then if at any point in time you all have any questions, recruiting questions, we'll get into those as well. So join me tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern for a live uh, recruiting podcast. We are going to talk 2023 quarterbacks. So hit the like button on the show. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Subscribe to the Irish Breakdown channel. Share our videos. Tell your Notre Dame friends about our channel and about our website. Subscribe to the Irish Breakdown newsletter so that you get all of our stories in your inbox the morning after. And of course, if you're listening via podcast, uh, hit the like button and then if or subscribe button. And if you can, we would appreciate you giving us a five-star rating. So everybody have a great rest of your day. Talk to you again later tonight. And then tomorrow, Vince will be back for our Friday free-for-all podcast. So talk to you all very soon.